This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Hello to the one and only Chris Swan. Hello. You you spent your life um, interviewing people and um, doing uh, famous international uh, documentaries, films, and many other things. Um, how does it feel to be interviewed by me? Uh, as interesting as ever. I mean, I, I don't normally do interviews, and... Um... I recently did one about West Side Story, which is how you found me, um, because essentially I spent my life behind the camera. I'm not that interested. I'm fascinated by talent. I'm fascinated by people that take the arts about which I care passionately to places where I can feel renewed about them. I can think about them again. Very, there's very little that's actually original. There's an enormous amount that's actually about refreshing, reinvigorating aspects of the arts that you know. And I don't really regard myself as interesting. I'm far more interested in what's beyond the camera or the microphone. Well, I, I, I've known you, I've known you uh, <laughs> for only a month and a half or so, and uh, I can't wait to actually uh, meet you. And we'll arrange that. Um, and it's wonderful to have you on the show. So uh, the show, uh, I'm Mel Rosenberg, the host of the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. And I am here with the wonderful producer, director, Author, a ceramics restorer, um, <laughs> a author, playwright, and a few other things I've forgotten, Christopher Chris Swan. So I'm going to call you Chris. And um, you you have actually, I was going to say been intimate, but you've been very friendly um, and interviewed three of my great heroes of my life. I, I wish I had known you way back when. Um, you've done uh, films with uh, Leonard Bernstein. Paul McCarthy and uh, Maurice Sendak, and uh, and probably more of my heroes that I don't even know about. Um, but I found you indeed by the interview that you gave just a few months ago on this incredible documentary, which I had seen on the recording in 1985, I think, by Deutsche Grammophon of West Side Story, Leonard Bernstein, you probably called him Lenny, um, with opera singers and fantastic musicians and and then i then i found it. and here you are 
So let, let, let's start with that, because I'm a big uh, uh, West Side Story fan. Well, uh, that came about um, by pure chance. Uh, well, when I went into BBC television, the people there weren't that interested in popular arts. They liked to do, they were very ghettoized. And um, they'd signed a contract with Lenny to do three films, one about Marla, which is very good, very worthy. Uh, I can't remember what the other one was about. And, one, and they committed to um, Deutsche Grammophon that they would film every moment of Lenny recording West Side Story in New York, which is quite an ask, actually. And nobody really wanted to do it. And it was kind of, you know, a small film, this and the other. And um, eventually Muggins here was asked whether, whether I would do it. And I said, I, I, I have this terrible habit of never saying no to anything that might remotely be interesting. I thought, well, that's okay. It's New York. I love New York. Quite good to go there for a week. Uh, Lenny, big hero. There. I have half a dozen people I wanted to work with who I regard as geniuses, and I did. Um, and I'm very proud of that, and it's taught me a lot. Um, so we, so they said, all right, you can go and do it. It's just a little film, you know, nothing very important. And we went across to New York, and they were doing it in the Avenue of the Americas, in Sixth Avenue, <laughs> on the sixth floor. And the problem was that in order to record every minute, we would have to done it on video, which was quite new in those days. I mean, not that new, but it's new. And um, the only way into this studio was through a door in the side of the building, six floors up. <laughs> we said, well, hang on, because you need lots of cables. We said, well, hang on, can we keep the door open? No, because someone will die. Can we put a hole in the wall? No, because that would ruin the building. So we came back and um, my assistant, who's now my wife, Francis, said, well, we can't, we did, you just said, we can't do it, we can't do it, we can't do it. And um, uh, she said, why don't you do it on film? He went, what? Um, and there was an anomaly in the BBC then that um, all filming costs were below the line. So they didn't really affect the budget. And um, the powers that be seeing a cheap date, if ever there was one, said, because um, we don't have to pay for flights and people over there, said, yeah, OK, you can do it on film. So I took four film crews with me. Um, the only other time this had been done was for the, I think it's called The Ring Resounding, which was the filming of Kirsten Flagstart, I think, when John Carlshaw made the Decca recordings of The Ring, which I knew all about. I'd known about since I was in my teens. I was mad Wagnerian. Um, and um, even that, they'd been video cameras. This, this is really the first time anyone had done film, and because it, it's very expensive, not me else. And they said I could have 180 rolls, which was basically 180 10-minute rolls on four cameras, and, film, and I was to film the lot. Well, it's possible to do that. So we went over there and um, uh, and did it essentially. But when I the first time I went out there, right, this is quite a long story. It depends how long you got. Um, uh, well, uh, we have um, about forty five minutes, but we yeah. want to talk about Paul McCartney and Maurice Sendak. We do indeed. Mm. Um, this is the freshest in my mind at the moment. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I've been I've been warned by Frank Cosaro, who's a very famous American producer. That you know that Lenny at this stage in his career was clearly gay, clearly out, and he said, "Be careful if he tries to kiss you, keep your mouth shut, or he'll wash your tonsils," which is the best advice I'd had. And um, we go out, and Lenny doesn't really know what to make of me and what we're doing, but I was very lucky that I had four cameramen I'd worked with before, and and they just came to the pool. They were what I was given. I was going to be given whoever wasn't working that week. 
and they were a very distinguished group of cameramen. They all just got down it. There was something about something about that week which is not repeatable because it was the, it was a collision of all this energy. Lenny, who'd never conducted it before, Kiri, who was would have had Lenny's children, I think, at this stage. He was so in love with the idea. Tatiana Trialis, who's a brilliant, much lamented her loss, singer. Jose Carreras, who was the third person they'd approached. They'd approached Domingo and Nicholas. Um, well, well, was, was, was he miscast in this? Well, think? everybody goes on about that. No, he just couldn't sing jazz. Um, <laughs> uh, if, you, if you are obsessed with casting, absolutely, uh, it, it's a nonsense. You cast a talent. He was one of the three most talented tenors in the world. He just couldn't sing jazz. And most classical singers and instrumentalists, I had a long discussion with Victoria Mulliver about this, trained in the Russian technique. It drove her mad that she couldn't swing because all she wanted to do was swing. And Carreras wanted to swing, but he, it, it, it's like glue. You, you, are, yeah. you, are, uh, it, you, you are driven by the orchestra when you sing classically. You have to be in tune with the conductor and orchestra. If you listen to Sinatra, he's always just behind the beat. And that's where you, or you, that's where you get the swing from. You're either in front. Mm -hmm. In other words, you let yourself loose. You let, it, you let the tempi follow you and not you the tempi. And that's what Carreras couldn't do. And, and bless him, he did try. And he sings Maria beautifully. And 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 and, no, and it, 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 what it, the hell? Chris, it's a beautiful movie, and it, it's it's a wonderful. Like you say to yourself, if you didn't shoot that documentary, it wouldn't exist. And and how wonderful that it does. And um, my, you know, you 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 feel like you're a real kibitzer here. How how did you manage to get away with showing everything, whatever you wanted to? Well, because. Like all really great men, Lenny trusted me, and Lenny had the final say. I didn't know this, but I'm also a belligerent sort of chap, so I do, I do what I want to until someone higher up with the money says don't. And when I worked with a wonderful editor called Howard Billingham, and we put together, this is supposed to be a 50-minute film, we put together a 100-minute rough cut because we had the material was so good. And I'm rung up. By Humphrey Burton, not a man I particularly get on with, and said, you need to come to New York with this rough cut. I said, why? Said, and he said, well, Lenny wants to see it. And I said, why? He said, well, he's got editorial control. <laughs> I said, pardon? Um, we're in the BBC, you know. And he said, yes, yes, that was, that was what we signed in the contract. Don't get me started on misinformation. It's been there all along. And I went, oh, okay. Okay, so I put all this on to uh, pneumatic tapes, which is all we had in those days. And I get on board a plane and I fly to New York. And um, as opposed to the first time I went there when I met Lenny at three o'clock in the morning, my time. This is the reasonable time this time. So I go to his offices, which are the Amberson offices in New York, because he was managed by Amberson. And I go in with the tapes and the place is rocking. It's like a party. Everybody involved in the recordings there. Lenny's there. All his lovers are there. You know, it's just Matt, John McClure, a wonderful record producer who I'm not too kind to in the movie. Well, I, I just show how it is. And they all, and I think, oh, I think very naughty words at this stage. 
And um, I go, oh, okay, there's a tip. Anyway, they all sit down in a viewing theatre. This is a rough cut in a viewing theatre. And Lenny sits there, and there's an empty seat. He says, come along, come along, come sit beside me. So he sit and start to watch with me, trying to work out what I'm going to do next with my life at the stage. And after about 10 minutes, he says, ah, I didn't know you were doing this, he said. <laughs> we had been in the room with him. He said, it's like theatre. Yeah, it is. And then he doesn't say anything till the end of the film. And then he gets up and he says to me quietly, he said, I was harder on the tenor than that tonight. I said, yes, I've slightly distorted the time frame. But if you're OK with it, I'll put it back exactly as it happened. Do that. And he said, and I want a picture of the double basses bow at this point. I said, well, that's <laughs> fine. So that great. Was it. That was it. Chris, when did he? Yeah. The, the thing about that is, I was then bomb-proofed. Nobody in the world could then tell me to alter the film. And he had approved the film I wanted to make. That's only happened to me twice in my life. Once was Lenny when we won the BAFTA. The second time was when we won the Emmy. Because I thought the BAFTA was a fluke. And then 10 years later, we won an Emmy. And I went, maybe not a fluke. Um, and, and one of the tragedies of creative arts is when you're really good at it and you know what you're doing it's very difficult to find the people that trust you to do the best work you can and on two occasions it happened one of them was West Side Story. Incredible it's uh, the 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 um what I feel I don't understand the film but I, I feel when I'm watching it and I've watched it several times that I'm there you know that I'm in the room. Yeah. That's that's how yeah. I feel. You've, you've transported me to a fly on the walls, watching Lenny and these these crazy creative people and talents um, recreate uh, perhaps the best musical ever. Um, so I, I want to ask you in one sentence, uh, what makes West Side Story for you? It's a documentary maker's dream. All documentary makers are all documentaries of fiction in the same way as drama is. But what documentaries uncover through the storytelling is the inner truth of what's happening in front of the cameras. And if you don't do an egoistic on them, in other words, if you if you know how to become transparent, my, my autobiography would be called The Invisible Man. If you know how to become transparent in a world that really wants you to be full of personality, within the working environment, you can capture on camera the truth of what's happening in front of you and that it's up to your skill because my real skill is an, is an editor really because any fool can be created I, I, i'm sure when you had four four takes of everything and to uh, oh, weave them all together that's crazy okay, well, uh, we, we we were just very clever in how we put them all together uh, i see okay well, let, so let me ask you let me rephrase the question because you've answered <laughs> you've answered another wonderful question that's not mine um, the 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 um, okay. I'll I'll try and make it clear. The um, Lenny Bernstein told you that it was the best thing he'd ever done. He did a lot of things. Stephen Sondheim didn't think it was the best thing he'd ever done. The 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 score itself, the musical itself, not the acting, the words and the music and the orchestration. What does it for you? It's all. It's almost. A perfect musical is, is, and I love musicals, 
it, because it encapsulates a great story, which is Romeo and Juliet, in a way that will relate the opera can't. It leaves it in the world of the normal, the innocent, and the unknowing. Whereas opera tends to elevate into kind of have to accept, you have to suspend so much disbelief that, that it's a real intellectual heft. But with musicals, which is the only theatrical form the Americans have invented, and it is their invention, you get this, it comes from European roots, it comes from Vienna and operetta. Um, that's a long story I'm going to tell here, but it, you can trace it all the way back. And it's, it's, Lenny was able in that musical to touch the common man through his ability to portray love, violence, hatred, all the emotions you associate with great theatre and hope to feel in great opera were there in that musical. For me, it, um, it's almost impossible now to watch because his tempi is so in my head. I can't watch the Spielberg film because I know that's not the tempi that Lenny. I heard it over and over and over and over again when you're editing that, that it, it that it is a moment of creative perfection, and they are really rare. You know, most people achieve it once or twice in their life. The great, the great artists, but that was the moment that that, that created a sort of a record of perfection, even with mm -hmm. its flaws, because the, uh, beauty is in the flaw. There's a wonderful... Well, well, what, what, did, what did our friend Leonard Cohen say? Did you make a movie of Leonard Cohen too? No, no, far too depressing. <laughs> well, he said there's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. So yeah. there, there's, there's, there's perfection in imperfection. Yeah, absolutely. And without the imperfection, there is no beauty. Um, it, it, it's It's... It's one of life's little conundrums. When did when did Lenny say this to you? That that um, I, I, say it in your words. It's so beautiful. Well, we have gone back to New York to um, put in Marilyn Horn, who sings somewhere. Kiri does it in the film, and they were sort of chatting away. And you know how people coalesce around famous people, hang of the dreary hangers on, the people for whom this is as good as their lives will ever get, and they all suddenly vanished. Because uh, they had better things to do. And Lenny was sat there. And I was sat there. And it was a moment of calm, peace, really. And Lenny, Lenny then turned to me and said, Christopher, you know, West Side Story is the best thing I've ever done. And the tragedy is I don't know how I did it. And then everybody came back. But that moment, you can call me a liar, you can call me what you like. That moment with Lenny was when he manifested his greatness because great artists know that they're good but don't believe they're good and that is the conundrum you go for, forward with in creativity and, and also the, it's a very frank uh, frank uh, moment because uh, you're a playwright and um and, and and we know that sometimes where you're when you're in a creative zone, you know, um, I wrote something this morning that I think is pretty good. I probably won't think it's pretty good tomorrow. Um, <laughs> and, and and then I asked myself, as I always do, where did this idea come from? How did that happen? And there's really never a good answer. Um, there's no, but, there's no yeah. answer. If but, you start out on where it comes from, you're mad. But coming from Lenny, it, it's crazy. Um, it, you must have, you must have like. Uh, 
felt like you were in some kind of other world at that at that moment in time. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a it was one of those moments when the gods give you privilege and they stop time and they give you the jewel of why you're here. And that was one of the things that locks into my understanding of why I have to keep doing all this. So, so Leonard Bernstein in that uh, interview you did a few months ago, which is so wonderful, is what made me uh, go on a, uh, a hunt, a Chris Swan hunt. It wasn't that hard to find you. Um, and, and, then it, and then it turns out that you, one of your besties was Maurice Sendak, uh, who's widely considered the best picture book author illustrated that ever was. Yep. And you did all these films with him. Yep. My goodness. I think this, this, is, this, is the, this is the basis of our, like this is, we've had the preamble with Lenny Bernstein. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, we come, now we come to the serious shit. <laughs> how did this happen? So you want to know how this all came about? Because it's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of crazy. And I, I loved him. Dude. I mean, he, he loved us. He knew the kids. We went to see him. I mean, we have, he, he, uh, Maurice never gave anything to anyone. But we have signed posters to each of us, and we and the boys have a signed um, opera design for the Lovers Three Oranges on the wall. They don't quite know what they've got, but it's there. Um, I have an obsession with illustrated books. It goes way back. It began, I think, with Asterix, and I loved Asterix. I love illustrated books. Not Tintin so much, but a bit. But Asterix really hit. Hit, hit me on the head. I was a teenager. I loved it. I read it in French. I read it in English. They were very lucky, Odette and Goscony, because they had really good English translators. Derek Bell and Anthea, I'm going to forget what her name was. They were terrific, and they, they brought the life of Asterix into an English-speaking world without destroying the French, sort of the Frenchness of it. So I had this big thing about this, and it moved on, and there were Shepherd, and there was Rackham, and there was uh, Beardsley, and I was obsessed with uh, Aubrey Beardsley, uh, particularly because some of it was suppressed at the time. You could only see his Lysistrator drawings in the British Museum, and then you had to have some sort of academic qualification. Not true now, but it was then. So I began to sort of follow this all the way through my teens, and then my uh, 20s, and I actually got Udertso to come on my radio program. One of my proudest achievements, because Goscony died very young at one of his 50s. And I became obsessed with Maurice. So when I went to telly, I was working on a BBC One program called Omnibus. And I said, I'd really like to make a film about Sendak. And I was in, I was in my early 30s, I think. And so they said, oh, 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 who's he? Where the wild things are? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah, vaguely heard of it. Mm. Okay, so I, I contact him. In those days, you could. I mean, now many of the things I did in my life aren't possible because there's so many walls between you and these people. I rang him up and he said, oh, hello. And I said, hello, Maurice. Um, we'd really like to come make a film about, we about by the BBC. And, oh, okay. So people arranged it that we would go to his house, which was the last house in Connecticut just by the border with New York State. And we got lost, which didn't help. And I had a wonderful American crew led by a cameraman who's came a great friend called Phil Grice. And um, we all sort of set off there. And we come up to Maurice's house. It's a beautiful house in its own grounds with dogs. And it, it was snowing. I remember this. And we knock on the door. Maurice 
papers, it says, oh, hello, you're from the BBC. I said, well, I can give you an hour. And we went, we went oh, oh, well, we stayed for three days. Because he he loved, he, it was, it was one of those magical moments. He loved the American crew because they were all mad. And they, I, he and I got on very well because I, I have a gift with geniuses. I can be in their company without being an idiot, without boring them, really. And, and we made this 20-minute film and we became great friends. What was so interesting was watching him work because he worked for us. We talked about it. We had to stop every day so he could watch the days of our lives on telly, which he watched every day all of his life. This was it. This is the only thing that stopped it. And he began to talk about things that we knew about, the background to where the wild thing are and the Jewish art. His, his, his aunt and uncle. His well, it was his aunt, really. They used to lean over <laughs> And he had, a, he had this incredibly visual, vivid imagination. Uh, he had a memory like mine, which is incredibly retentive. And he said they used to lean over him as a baby and go, you're so sweet, I could eat you up. And, then he, and he really thought they would, which is how the monsters appear. But also he had this genius that he reinvented the, the picture book by, by A, by the use of cross-hatching, but by pushing it out so that it bled over the edges. So that the whole book, which is which he talked to me about, the thing he found most difficult with it was the words. I think there's 365 words, and he found that incredibly difficult. So that was the hardest bit. And it opens like a flower. And then you get to the middle where the rumpus starts, and everything's going off the pages. Everything's being pushed off. Nobody had really done that before. And he, re I think, personally, he reinvigorated um, the children's picture book in a way that's almost unimaginable. Everybody does it now. It's easy now. But then he was doing something extraordinary. He was also obsessed, absolutely obsessed, with getting the colours right in the book. Because uh, colour printing, as you know, at one point wasn't very good and it was trying to get better. Now it's pretty brilliant now. And he, was, he talked endlessly about getting that palette exactly right. And and the the other thing that we discovered quite early on is that everything he created goes to a small museum in Philadelphia. He never gave everything away. I'm very, very lucky that I have a copy of um, Outside Over There, first edition signed to me personally, with a drawing in it, which is kind of um, uh, nice and very unusual. So we did this film and we became great friends. And... Uh, I, we kept in touch. And then his, Where the Wild Things Were, are, beg your pardon, and Higgledy Piggledy Pop, which he wrote about the death of his dog, Jenny, the Celium. Maurice was passionate about dogs. He, he loved dogs. He wrote a dog training book, which I recommend to all those people out there called Some Swell Pup, um, which is, uh, tells you how to train a dog in these beautiful pictures. And um, Oliver Lusson, the composer, who I, I didn't know Ollie at the stage, had set both of these books into small operas, chamber operas. And because I'd worked with Trevor Nunn at Glyndebourne, and because I knew Maurice, and Maurice got together with them, they got me down to put it onto telly. Um, so we did we did the the wild things. Uh, with an American soprano who's quite small called Karen Beardsley and these wonderful things. And this was, and again, the, the, the friendship blossomed, the kids came and saw him. 
he began to tell me things from his past, some of which I can't tell you, some of which I can. Uh, he was obviously gay. We found that out quite early on because there were two sets of gum boots at the bottom of the stairs, one his size and one very much bigger. And he, he said to me, I can't admit to being gay. I can't come out as gay in America. You can't have a gay kid as author. And I thought I was ashamed, really, because if you work in the arts, 50% of the people you work with are gay. So I just found that sad. He couldn't be completely himself at that stage. Um, and he obviously had this, this extraordinary relationship with his family, with his sister and with things that happened with his father and all that. And we talked a great deal about that. And he, and he said to me, you know, Chris, the thing is that when we are young, blueprints are laid down. We are what we were. And that takes me to the further exploration of images in children's books because a child before they can articulate are only influenced in terms of their imagination by their surroundings and by the pictures of the books you put in front of them they can hear the story but they can necessarily understand it so they are really really important and parents should realize that you know and the richer they are and they also should be dark as well as light, because if you protect kids from from evil, then they're never going to be able to deal with it. You know, this is not a benevolent world. If only it were, it isn't. So we began to do the operas, and um, uh, that was immense fun. And when we got to Higgledy Piggledy Pop, it was unfinished. The middle bit, Ollie Nussen was famous for being... Um, well, I won't use the expression, but retentive with his creative. There were he had blocks, okay. And um, we were we were going. Well, should we do it? You know, there was there was a lot of stake because it made a lovely double bill on telly and the other. And I was having lunch just before we did the final take. We'd we done pickups and things, and Ollie comes over to me and he says, "Chris, I've written the missing thirty-two bars." Do you think we should include it? <laughs> That's the moment where, Ollie, if we don't do it now, when the hell are we going to do it? So he put the missing bit in, and more or less immediately before we filmed it. And it's actually on the piano, but it, it works, actually. I don't know whether he then orchestrated, because I haven't seen them since. So we did, we did have this wonderful time doing that. Frank Corsaro, the man who to led to Lenny, uh, worked with me. He was, he was outrageous. Uh, and in... Um, in Hibbledy Piggledy Pop, we put an act, uh, singer into a full Celium dog costume and met, nearly killed her because she sweated. She lost so much body weight that, I mean, she was almost delirious when we got her out. And then after West Side Story, the BBC told me face to face that I wouldn't work for a year. Um, they didn't like the fact I was in my mid-30s and won the most prestigious award I could. I was supposed to be much older. And I decided in the end that I would leave. And it was it was kind of a strange decision because I just got married and I just had twins and disaster was just around the corner. But I decided to leave because in the end, I thought the BBC would not be the place I joined fairly soon. And it really isn't and wasn't. I also wanted, I didn't want to end up flying a desk. I'm no good behind desks. And I'm just, forget it. I'm not made to be a bureaucrat. I'm not made of the micro nature of life. I'm made for the macro nature of life. Some people are, some people aren't. 
And I also stood there when I'd done it and I thought, well, my father was freelance. My grandfather was freelance. Both my grandfathers were freelance. My great grandfather was freelance. What the hell was I doing in a safe job? And then it all began again. And then um, I was approached by American Masters to make a film. Well, no, actually, I think we approached them with Maurice about Mozart, because one of the great passions that Maurice had was, was Mozart. You call it passion. Uh, some people are going to look at that film and call it a little bit of an obsession. Oh, total obsession. He had by his bedside, in a drawer, a letter from Mozart to his father. He loved him. He called him Papa. Yeah. In many ways, it was a stronger relationship with Mozart than it was with his own father. It was it was a total obsession. And he wanted to go on a journey. We, we wanted to tell a big story about Maurice. And we also about his love of opera, his opera designs, which are amazing. Uh, love of Three Oranges. He did The Cunning Little Vixen, one of my favorite operas. He did A Nutcracker, which I think is on telly. And he, he loved that world. He loved that world because... It's not that anything goes in the theatre, but everyone accepts everything in the theatre, really. Mm -hmm. isn't, isn't, Chris, isn't that where his wild things get to have their freedom? Yeah, 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 yes. Yes, the, 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 the books on the page are, are, are kind of limited. And, and that film which you've seen, which took us to Philadelphia, took us into sort of parts of his mind, and to, and to a wonderful story that he told me which led to a book. Um, you, you probably know this story, but there was a book dealer in Europe that pulled up some old books. And in one of the books, there was a letter that fell out. And he picked the letter up, this, this book dealer. And he realized it was a letter from one of the brothers Grimm to a young girl who'd lost her mother. And he looked, and, and, and he's writing, dear Millie, well, it's, I think it's Millie. It's terrible, you know, the grief. And then he, then he gives up. Grim, and he starts to tell a story. And what the um, book, the antiquarian bookseller found was an original story by one of the brothers Grimm that nobody knew about. So to cut a long story for short, it goes to America, it's sold on to a publisher, and the publisher says, well, I've got this one, who am I going to get to illustrate it? And they went, well, Maurice. So they ring Maurice up, and he says, hello. Says, what's this about? He said, they, we told the story. He went, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, we'd like you to interview. We'd like you to um, illustrate it. He said, okay. He said, quite okay, I'll illustrate it. Okay. And they, he's just about to put the phone down, the uh, publisher, and says, oh, well, hang on a minute. We haven't discussed a fee. And Maurice said, that's easy. It's the letter. And the other letter in his bedside table was the letter that led to the book, Yeah, Millie which is this story about um, the girl who loses her mother and goes into the forest and then comes back many years later to find she's still the same age, but everybody else has grown up. It's a very moving story. And Maurice was like that. He met someone in New York, an old Jewish lady, and um, he said, oh, hello, hello, you know, and I've some get together on. She said, oh, she said, I want to tell you a story. She said, I said, oh, I'll tell the story. He said, I was in... Germany. So, and um, she was a little, apparently a little blonde, beautiful Jewish girl. This is Maurice's story, it's not mine. Mm -hmm. And they were on one of the transports and they stopped at the station and she got off and everybody tried to keep her with them. And she ran away 
And she ran up to this German officer and said, can you help me? And the German officer looked down at her and smiled and said, come with me. From that moment, she was saved. The rest of her family went to the gas chambers, but she was saved by the kindness of a single German officer, possibly in the SS. And Maurice found that to reinforce that there is humanity in the worst of times, something we can both recognize at the moment. But that act of humanity had led to her being in New York and able to tell that story to Maurice 40, 50 years later. Incredible. Never told anyone that story. Maurice told it to me. He was a great man. He he suggested then that uh, Iona Opie, the Opies were great collectors, you may know, of children's books. And they were giving their um, collection to the Bodleian, to the Bodleian Museum. And it was all going to be in transit. So well, why don't you do they, They've got everything right the way back to chapbooks and battle doors and everything, the lot. And make a big series about children's illustration. We went. And that series them. is incredible. That series is incredible. I was spellbound. Who who wrote the narrative? You wrote the narrative. Chris, you're, a, you're an author. It, I didn't realize it, that. It's now, now, what, what I didn't understand, you told me that you got the rights back. Yep, I have the right. And, have the... Where, where was it originally aired? Channel 4, one, once. Channel 4. No, nobody, nobody... What's really fascinating about my life is nobody gave a flying ferret about what I was doing. And yet I'm one of those rare people. The Bernstein's repeated. Pavarotti in Hyde Park is repeated. The McCartney films are being repeated. I touched, unlike most people, I used to, I was once asked whether I would like to work more. And I said, yeah, I'd love to work much more. And the the producer, very senior producer said, "Um, but you really don't want to make, you know, one and a half thousand supermarket sweeps. And I went, no, I was rather like a Rolls Royce that was only bought out special occasions. But those occasions may have made a difference. I made the only film about cats, for instance. That's the only film with the original cast, much to Andrew Lloyd Webber's annoyance. I made the only only film with Walter Hussey, who was one of the great commissioners. One second, Andrew Lloyd Webber's annoyance because? It's about Gillian Lynn, not about him. <laughs> who was the mastermind behind why cats worked. It's a, it's a choreographical piece of Hussey okay. Would Be Proud. So... Um, um... I want to now, so so you now own the rights to that. I'm going to be very yeah. eager to find out what you do with that because for children's books, children's book lovers around the world and authors and illustrators and everybody else, but particularly people like us, this is a treasure trove. I'm happy to put it up online. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I, 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 I don't, I, I, I don't benefit from my, my genius very much, but that, that would be, that would be, Fine, because nobody else will do it. They just think it's boring. And yet within that, I, I offered it to the Bodley and they said, oh, you know, could you transfer it to DVD? No, 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 no. It'll just get put on a shelf, for heaven's sake. Put it up on your website. Use it. Use it. It's about your effing books that are in your shelves. I was hoping that you're going to find a way to share it because it's 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 incredible. Um, I put it up on YouTube on a channel, and you, anyone can have access. Chris, well, before you we say, yeah, no, no, you, you do it. Uh, um, <laughs> I I can help. Um, so before we segue to uh, to Paul McCarthy, 
Um, you've had this, I have, I have two questions. Um, the first question is a personal question. Um, you produced films in Israel. You produced a... Um, no, I, direct, I directed them. Yeah, I directed. <laughs> and, um, well, for me, it's hard to sometimes distinguish. Um, but, uh, okay, you directed, and um, you've been here many times, and uh, the two uh, Jewish uh, characters we describe now, uh, Lenny and Maurice, you, you have a, a, a Jewish sentiment, Chief. Yeah, probably. I was once, well, I was once described as the most Catholic, non-Catholic anyone had ever met. I don't really, I don't really, I suppose in the end, I don't really take sides. I'm as trained as a, my degree is in pure mathematics and econometrics. So I know that was, no that was my next question. <laughs> so I know there's no such thing as truth. There's just, and most people, most people are brought up to believe that life is binary. Give me a break. Give me a break. If you believe there's a solution to anything, you're a fool. If you believe that there isn't, there isn't a grayness of indecision and weakness within almost every aspect of society, you're a fool if you don't know that. But, but there's a wonderful quote at the beginning of Rosencrantz and Fildens' Turn of Dead, which says they're, they're tossing a coin. Goes up and I play Guildenstern, find that, and it always falls down heads. And they're, they're arguing, Guildenstern and Rosencrantz. And then I think, I can't remember which of them says it, I think it might have been me, and um, says, The scientific examination of phenomena is a defense against the extreme emotion of fear. And I think that's the problem is it's life is scary. I can walk out of the door and go under a bus. Life, life is about risk, it's about monitoring and controlling risk, which I wish some of my younger folks and my children understood as you, you cannot control, you can do anything you want, but you cannot control the outcome of that action. You simply can't because the unknowns that proceed from an action are so infinite that they are uncontrollable. And, and it really annoys me. It's like all these politicians going around and analyzing statistics. They don't understand statistical analysis. They don't understand modeling. They don't understand diddly shit. Pardon, sorry, readers. But it, and it's really annoying because actually, if you do understand the shifting sands of it all, you begin to understand how to, it's like life is not, a journey on foot it's like controlling a ship in a storm unless you understand how to deal with the tides and the winds and everything you'll never you'll never make a journey i have someone in my family who's completely averse to risk and i said well i don't understand why you're born if you don't take risks because the safest lives is the most boring it can and also be the most risky well Yes, actually, absolutely. And and the, the fun of risk is you find places you'd never think you'd ever go. You find people you think you'd never ever meet. You find things about life. I went to the Yemen for two weeks. That was the most interesting and wonderful two weeks of my life before they decided to go apeshit and ruin it all. I mean, I saw things there that go back beyond the Bible. I saw things, and because we went independently, two of us, we were very tall, which meant we stayed out, we stood out in the end. We were taken under the wing of, and this has happened to me a lot wherever I've gone, we were taken under the wing of the Yemenis, and we were shown things that tourists never see. 
So we went deep into the souk in Sanaa, deep places tourists would never get to. And we saw a, we saw an auction for the knives, you know, the jambalas, I think that they, they all were. And then some of them, it's a, a, a statement of status on the ones with diamonds, meaning all very rich and rhinoceros and all that. And they were having an auction. And we, it sounded like we were taken and we were told not to say anything. And we stood at the back. And the auctioneer was laid out, a young, beautiful man like Scheherazade on a carpet, taking the bids. And the guy who was selling it um, had got $60,000, but it wasn't enough. He sort of, they all rowed and walked out. And we said, well, what happens next? And he said to us, he'll be back tomorrow and take the offer, <laughs> which I thought was a great attitude towards auctioneering. But... Um, sure. It's it's I've gone way off piste. I'm sorry. Yeah, and then, and 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 and, uh, and we're coming to the end of the show, which means that we're going to have another show because we have not talked about the Gershwins and we haven't talked about Rhapsody in Blue, which is a hundred years old the day after tomorrow. Today, doing... today, today, it's the twelfth. Really, it's not the fourteenth? No, it's oh, that's Valentine's. No, it's the twelfth of February. It was given in New York. Yes. So happy and, birthday, the Rhapsody in Blue. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we're hoping to put that on on October. Yeah, we're, and we're, uh, we haven't talked about Elton John either. We so. haven't talked about Elton John and Paul McCartney and all kinds of other people. <laughs> and I, I just, you know, I was going to ask you in closing, um, how does it happen that a guy who studies mathematics and economics and econometrics uh, becomes a a wild film producer and many other things? And, and you've just answered it. And um, while I'm sitting and talking to you, I realized that, you know, Sendak, I, what, you know, I was thinking today, Sendak in Hebrew, Sendak is, is a godfather. And um, life is where the wild things are. And Maurice understood that. And you've illuminated that to me today, and I hope to many other people. So uh, Chris Swan, uh, this has been terrific. Uh, I'm Mel Rosenberg for the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. And this has been about children's literature and a whole bunch more. Chris Swan, thank you very much. And um, we're going to leave and then come back in two minutes and we'll do a little sum up and we'll find our next interview. Okay, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.